Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to another Anthem Online. We're so glad that you chose to worship with us. Hey, uh, as you can see, our community is continuing to grow. and We have some exciting things coming up. I just want to let you know that on October 2, October 2, we are going to be launching Season 3 online and in person. Uh, we're so excited about this. Um, God is moving. God is working. We're actually singing a song called Walk on Water today. And some of the lyrics, it goes, I'd rather slip walking on water than spend my whole life wondering what if. And here at Anthem, uh, we, we want to step out into what God is calling us. Uh, we want to step out into faith. We have been stepping out in faith, and we've been seeing what God is doing right here. So uh, we're, we're stepping out in faith here this morning. We want to invite you. Maybe God is calling you to step out in faith in a certain area of your life. Don't hesitate. Listen to his voice and step out on that water. We're just about ready to start. Um, so turn your hearts towards him. Uh, warm your voices up. Gather your family. Gather around the couch. And we're going to head into our auditorium and begin worship. Thank you so much to Emily, to Josh, to the worship team. Just delighted to have each of you here today here at Anthem. I don't think you can maybe realize how satisfying on a deep spiritual level it is for many of us who have the privilege of helping to lead here at University Church to see Anthem come to fruition. This has been a dream of many years, many prayers, uh, building a person, a team, and this morning to know that God has brought us to this place it's very meaningful. So take out your phones. We have a multiple choice quiz for you. See how you're doing this morning with some Bible facts. So you're going to see a QR code or an address. Uh, if you take the picture, it'll take you to the place that you need to be. I'm trying to move around so I don't get in everyone's way here. Make sure you get the QR code. And we're going to do a five question multiple choice quiz. All right, so you ready? We're ready to start with number one. Here we go. I think some of you are still trying to capture the QR code, so maybe I'll wait another, another moment or two. Uh, make sure you get it. So question number one. The shortest verse in the Bible in the original languages is. You got five choices there. John 11, 35, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Luke 17, 32, Deuteronomy 5, 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. What is the shortest verse in the Bible in the original languages? Looks like everybody's pretty much voted. All right. Shortest verse in the Bible in the original languages? B. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. John 11.35 in English is. The original language is that's three words and 16 characters long. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is two words, 14 characters long. Uh-oh. <laughs> quick, quick. <laughs> get it changed. We get it right. All right. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> Uh, don't tell first service because they got it wrong too, and I'm just going to tell them Anthem got that right, you know. They're, they're <laughs> All right, number two. Which is the middle chapter of the Bible? Psalm 116, 117, 118, 119, 120. Which is the middle chapter of the Bible? 
Now, we're going to have to cut this off because we're going to get every one of them right if we keep doing this. All right, so we're going to cut it off about right now. So, all right, so 40% with Psalm. The correct answer is B, Psalm 117. Bible has 1,189 chapters, 594 before Psalm 117, 594 after Psalm 117. So we'll say that we're one, for, one out of two, right? Okay. Number three, here we go. These are the five shortest chapters in the Bible, these five. Job 25, Psalm 117, 131, 133, and 134. Which, however, is the shortest chapter in the Bible? Of these five options, which is the shortest? All right. Well, Job and Psalm 117 are hanging pretty close. Job's winning out. All right. Are we done? Okay, we're going to cut it off. So it is Psalm 117. So it's B. So we got one out of three, we'll say. Uh, it's curious. Psalm 117 is both the middle chapter and the shortest chapter. Number four, of the 66 books in the Bible, which is the longest, based on the number of words in the original? I know you'll know that, so I asked it. Which is the longest based on the number of words in the original, Jeremiah, Psalms, Ezekiel, Luke, or Genesis? Curiously, Genesis makes a run for it, but it's, it's not the one. Okay, we got to stop before I say any more. All right, we'll stop it there. So the correct answer is Jeremiah. Mercy. We're one for four. Sure glad we got that first one right. All right, number five. Number five, the country that produces the largest number of Bibles in the world, 50% of the total is United States, Great Britain, China, Brazil, or Texas. So which is the... <laughs> Which country produces the largest number of Bibles in the world? Have mercy. Now, if you're voting for Texas, i got to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. All right, so let's cut it off about right there. And you are correct. It is China. It is China. Rather surprising. All right, so we're going to say we got two out of five here. So you're ahead of first service. We'll see what happens in third service. Now, we need to do better than that in the multiple choice quiz we're taking for the entire camp meeting series. Today, we're on option C. To look at option C, we're going to the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. Book of 1 Kings, chapter 3. Let me give you just a bit of context for what's happening here. Solomon has become king. He is given a dream, a vision by God, in which God comes to him and says, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you what you want. You're king. Things are getting started. You name it, and you can claim it. So what do you desire? And Solomon, to his great credit, says, God, I need wisdom. I need wisdom to be able to rule this people well. You need discernment, depth. So God says to Solomon, because you've asked for this, when you could have asked for the death of your enemies, for wealth, for honor, for fame, you could have asked for any of those things. You asked for wisdom, I'm going to give it to you. And in addition, I'm going to give you wealth and honor. Turned out pretty well for Solomon. So the question is, after one reads that in the first 
half of 1 Kings 3. Okay, so God says, Solomon, I've given you wisdom. The question is, was he really wise? Did he really receive and exercise that gift? So right after that story is told, the writer adds another story to give us an insight into the wisdom of Solomon. And that's the story we read today. 1 Kings chapter 3, starting with verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put the dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living son is mine, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one's mine. And so they argued before the king. The king says, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, no, your son is dead and my son is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. Hmm. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, the king, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. It's a simple story. It's rather passionate, rather gripping. I've read it many times, never preached on it. But found my way back to this passage because we're trying to have wisdom for decisions. Trying to make the right decisions. And Solomon appears to have had that. So two women living together, each has a son, three days apart. They're sleeping with their child in their bed, understandable for warmth, for ease of breastfeeding. One accidentally, very easy to do, I'm sure, lays on and smothers her baby, gets up in the night, realizes that. And then in what I can only describe as a cold-hearted move, this woman is used to scratching and clawing her way through life. She takes the dead one and exchanges it with the living one. Early morning light, the other mother awakens, and you can imagine the first few seconds of kind of cooling to her child, getting ready to feed him, and suddenly she realizes he's cold. You probably hear a shriek. She leaps up, grabs him, in the light looks at him, and then, I know this will get me in trouble, but how did she, re all newborns look alike, don't they? I mean, they're all the same, but anyway, don't tell my wife I said that, but um, she looks, she said, this is not my son. That one is mine. And they end up before the king. Now, Hebrew scholars say that in the original, the exchange, the back and forth that takes place in this process is evident that they are talking over each other, emotionally pushing each other out of the way. It's mine. No, no, no. It's yours. This one's mine. No, it's mine. And back and forth they go. And then Solomon acts. 
I don't know how you picture Solomon. I picture him speaking into this situation in a dispassionate, unemotional way because he knows what he's going to do and he's looking for a reaction. So unemotionally, he just says, um, get me a sword. We'll cut it in two. Give half to each. And the real mother shrieks in horror. Please. No, 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 no. Just give it. Give her my baby. Give her the baby. Don't kill him. The other says, no, no, that's fine. Cut him in two. We'll each take half. And Solomon says, that's the mother right there. Give her the child. And Israel, the writer says, is in awe. Honestly, I am too when I read that story. I think I never would have thought of that in that moment, that emotional situation. So the question is, how did Solomon make his decision? And what does what a king decided in front of two prostitutes in a court 3,000 years ago inform anything about our decision making today, 21st century Southern California? Simply this. Solomon knew how a mother is wired. He knew what a mother's DNA is. He knew what makes a mother tick. And he knew that there is no healthy, balanced, emotionally stable mother who would ever agree to his suggestion. And because he knew what makes a mother tick, he said, all right, here's what we'll do, and that's the mother. In fact, listen to these words taken from Old Testament scholar Thomas Constable, who simply writes, the king, that is Solomon, had insight into basic human nature, in this case into maternal instincts, that enabled him to understand why people behave as they do and how they will respond in various situations. Which leads to our key thought, our best decisions take into account how God has wired us. What makes us tick? So we're on option C. Option A, character. Option B, counsel. Option C, composition. Now I want to define that word. I want to explain that word because if you go to dictionary.com, you'll get 18 different definitions of composition. So here's what I mean by composition. Composition is just how we're made up, how we're wired, what makes us tick. That's what we are composed of. So if you choose this option on the multiple choice test, you're saying, when it comes to the process of making decisions, my composition, who I am as a person, is key in making that decision. Now, we could talk about our individual composition because every one of us has that. It's our, tempera our temperament, it's our loves and dislikes and hatreds and joys and sorrows and plans and dreams and failures and wounds. All of that is our composition. And that's key in the process of making decisions. In fact, I have loved over the years the quote by Frederick Beekner, the writer, who says, if you're trying to decide where to be, what to do, where to go, where to live in your life, he says, take two things into question. On the one hand, there's this traje trajectory of your deepest gladness. 
What, get, what ignites your fire, gives your passion? What do you do, the which after you're done saying it, you say, that's what I was created to do. Your deepest gladness. And then Beekner says, then consider the world's deepest sadness. All the needs around you. The people who need care and love and acceptance. Your deepest gladness, the world's deepest sadness. He says, where those two intersect, that's where you want to be. Your deepest gladness, the world's deepest sadness. To do that, you have to know your composition. What is my temperament? What gifts do I have? What are my talents? What are my joys and sorrows? But that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. We're not going to talk about the individual compositions of each of us. What I want to talk about is our composition as children of God, as creatures that God has crafted and designed. Is there something that we have in common that we ought to give heed to? Well, if we look not only at Solomon, but at Scripture, I want to point you in the direction of three realities that I believe are wired into us. There are DNA. And when you stand at the crossroads or the fork in the road and you're having to make a decision, if you would manifest the wisdom of Solomon, you need to pay attention to what it is that makes you tick. So what are they? Number one, you are wired for service. You are wired for service. Just look at the world around you. When everything is functioning as it should, we give, we take, we take, we give. It's a constant exchange. We are wired to serve others. And when we're all turned in on ourselves, we decay, we shrivel up, and we die. We're wired for service. Jesus himself, when he came, on more than one occasion said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Paul in Romans 14, speaking to people who are a part of the great web of humanity, says, none of us lives to ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. We are in the great web of humanity, so we must give and share and serve. I really like the way Ellen White, two simple comments she makes about this, that underline the importance. The first one, one sentence. All things both in heaven and in earth declare that the great law of life is a law of service. She expands on it with the second one. The law of service is written upon all things in nature. The birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the trees of the forest, the leaves, the grass, the flowers, the sun in the heavens, and the stars of light all have their ministry. Lake and ocean, river and spring water, each takes to give. I don't know why I remember it. I was in third year of college, maybe, went over to visit a friend. Sister was washing the car. She had an old hose, and she had a way that she could turn it off at the end of the hose so that when she was wiping out the car, she'd turn off the water, not at the spigot, but at the end of the hose. I was standing there, suddenly there was a pow, and there was a huge burst in the hose with a geyser of water shooting into the air that was simply saying, I can't keep taking in without giving out. It's the law of service. We are wired to serve. You know that feeling you get when you've done something, something that is unselfish, something that serves someone else, and they look at you and you can see the look on their face and the joy in their eyes and the tears on their cheeks, and they say to you, thank you 
and you just glow. Think of those words of Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That glow that you get, that's when your system is humming because that's how God designed you to serve. The surgeon, researcher, and writer Atul Gawande. An author writes about his experience with these words. Atul Gawande describes the story of Bill Thomas, a man who in the 1990s started working as the medical director of Chase Memorial Nursing Home in the town of New Berlin, New York. He was only 31 with little or no experience in elder care. With his newcomer's eyes, Bill was shocked by the three plagues, the three plagues of nursing home existence. Three plagues. Boredom, loneliness, helplessness. He was stunned by that. His plan was simple. Start bringing gardens, children, and pets into the nursing home. Lots of pets. Here's a snippet of the conversation that ensued after the nursing home director and his staff agreed to let Thomas bring more plants into the home. How about a dog, Thomas asked. There were safety code issues. But maybe, so yeah, the director said. Well, let's try two dogs, Thomas said. It's against code, they replied. Well, let's just put it down on paper, said Thomas. Dr. Bill was not seeing much enthusiasm in response, but he thought he was on a roll. How about cats? You want dogs and cats? They reluctantly agreed. Perfect, Bill said, Beamy. And we need more sound of life around this place. You know what would be best? The sound of birds singing. Let's put down 100. 100 birds in this place? You must be out of your mind. Have you ever lived in a house that has two dogs, four cats, and 100 birds? No, Bill said, smiling, but wouldn't it be worth trying? <laughs> Eventually, Dr. Bill wore them down, and they ordered the birds. The hundred parakeets all arrived on the same day. <laughs> but the bird cages hadn't come yet. <laughs> so the delivery man released the birds into the nursing home's beauty salon. The results were extraordinary. The number of prescriptions was cut in half with particular reduction in the use of psychotropic drugs, and mortality fell by 15%. This was the starting point for a larger program named, biblically appropriately, Eden Alternative. Why was the Eden Alternative so successful? Gawande concludes that we need loyalty or a dedication to a cause beyond ourselves. It doesn't matter if this cause is small as caring for a pet, or large, what matters is that such a cause provides meaning to one's life. Amen. We all need loyalty, and elderly people need it even more. People also need a sense of belonging. Listen to this sentence. We have an innate desire to be part of something larger than ourselves. He's saying that's wired into us. That's our DNA. We have an innate desire to be part of something that's bigger than me. He closes, when we are connected to life and to each other, we thrive. When we are disconnected, we die. So, when you stand at the crossroads, you're making a decision. If you would exp express the wisdom of Solomon, pay attention to how you're wired and ask some questions about service. What in this choice will allow me to serve others? How can I throw myself into the furrow of the world's need? How can I address somebody that's hurting, that is hungry, that is needy, that is lonely? What decision I, can I make here that will deepen my own desire to serve? 
Because in asking such questions, you're paying attention to how God designed you to tick. You pay attention to that, you'll hum. Because your system is working the way it was created to. We're designed to serve. Secondly, we're designed for relationships. We're designed for relationships. In fact, if you read the biblical account from the very beginning, that's obvious. Read Genesis 1 and 2. Read what God says in those chapters. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. That's very good. And then suddenly he says, not good. Well, what does he say not good about after all these goods? A solitary Adam. He looks and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And it sets a trajectory for the human experience thereafter, underlining the fact that God designed us for relationship. In fact, come to Jesus in the New Testament when he is laying out the ethic of his new kingdom. Huddle with the disciples around that upper room table under the shadow of the cross. He looks at them and he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Isn't it curious that of all the things he could have laid out as the ethic of his kingdom, he chooses the key reality that is necessary in relationship. Love. Make no mistake about it, we were designed for relationship. Therefore, when we're out of relationship, when our relationships are fractured, when we are lonely, we don't function well. Just consider all of the unhealthy decisions that come out of a deep sense of loneliness. From poor sexual choices, to poor drug choices, to suicide. I'm alone, I'm disconnected. Elon Musk, a name you know well, is worth, more than you are, more than I am. <laughs> Elon Musk is worth, according to some sources, they vary just a bit, but not that much, $168 billion. One of the only men on the planet who has started four separate billion-dollar companies. Now, just for some perspective, Bill Gates... 126 million. I read a piece on Bill Gates that said, if Bill Gates started spending a million dollars a day, a day, million today, million tomorrow, million on Monday, million on Tuesday, a million dollars a day, he has $126 billion, and he did that consistently, it would take him just about 350 years to run out of money. And Elon Musk is 50 billion north of Gates. Elon Musk was interviewed several years ago by Rolling Stone magazine, and he got rather personal about his life. And he said, there was something I said in my childhood that I didn't want, he said, and that was, I don't want to be alone. And then the interviewer said, he was pensive for a moment, and then he almost whispered it, I don't want to be alone. We're designed for relationship to the degree that if we aren't honoring that, 168 billion bucks won't fill it. We're designed by God to connect deeply and meaningfully with other key people in our lives. And that's why the experience of loneliness is so crushing, so overwhelming. 
I read about loneliness this week quite a bit. It just impressed me the number of lonely people in our increasingly connected world. In this, on this globe, in this world, where everybody is connected with everybody else. You think COVID is a pandemic? Loneliness is skyrocketing. And what's, what's interesting and sobering is that it is particularly there in the elderly and in the younger generations. Millennials, for example. High levels of loneliness. And yet, the writers say, we have a very hard time admitting that we're lonely. In fact, he said it used to be that depression was the taboo, but now people will openly talk about it. Dak Prescott, quarterback of a team that I've cheered for for years, just a few months ago came out and said, I've struggled with depression. People now at least talk about it. But the writers say they won't talk about loneliness. One writer says, and the reason is, it makes us look and feel like we're losers. Like we're the unpopular kids sitting at the table alone in the high school cafeteria that nobody wants to be with. And so nobody wants to be near that kid. And that's how we feel if we say, I'm lonely. And yet the truth is, we're designed for connection, for relationship, and if we don't have that, we don't function well. We wouldn't say of an automobile that has run out of gas or whose electric charge has dissipated, that's a weak car. wouldn't say that. Say that car has lost what it takes to drive it, to move it, to power it. That's what relationship is like in our lives. God has designed us to connect with others deeply and meaningfully. So when you stand at the crossroads of life, paying attention to the fact that that's how we're composed, that's our composition, it's time to ask some questions about relationships. If I go take this job, what is that going to mean for my relationships? For my marriage, for my parenting, for my relationships with friends, will I still have it? Will it enhance them? Will it, will it allow me time to connect? Or will I let the dollar signs get so glowing that I'm blinded to the fact that if I take that job, it's going to be very hard on my relationships? What about a decision for marriage? Is this person one who welcomes and embraces the friends in my life? You're not going to like everybody. Nobody likes everybody. In fact, if everybody, you know what Jesus said about that? He said, if everybody likes you, beware. <laughs> Well, a few times he said, beware. But does this person open me up to relationship? Will they connect with my family? Will they speak of my family is our family? What does it do to my relationships? And if I make choices about how I conduct myself in a whole range of ways, am I enhancing my ability to connect or am I building barriers between me and others? These are hard questions for me. I'm a loner. I have to work to move out of my... When you see me around walking, greeting people, it's by the grace of Jesus. <laughs> because honestly, I want to go sit in that corner and not connect. But honestly, I've prayed about that. And I've made choices to say, God, I've got to connect because you designed me, you designed them for relationships. So when you stand at that crossroads, ask yourself relational questions because you're wired for relationship. You're wired for service. You're wired for relationships. And thirdly, 
you're wired for God. I want to take you to something Solomon said. This same king that we've observed in the, in the courtroom with the two women before him. I want to take you to something he wrote over in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a rough book, I know. If you're having a bad day, don't read Ecclesiastes. It'll send you right over the edge. But, but he does say some good things there. And it comes right after those famous words where he says, There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. All of those words. Just after that, listen to what Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has set eternity in the human heart. That's Solomon's way of saying God has designed you for himself, for relationship with him. He has designed you with a yearning for permanence. I've had the, just the sacred privilege, that's all I can say, the last three or four weeks of officiating at, I don't remember now, three or four different funerals. Every time, I am invited into that sacred circle of sorrow. I am moved by the yearning that is in the human heart for permanence. He has set eternity in the human heart. The tears that I see, the sobs that I hear, family members clutching to each other at the idea of the broken dreams that are now theirs. God has set eternity in the human heart. They stand there at the edge of that grave yearning for permanence, for connection with God. I love the way C.S. Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis says, If I have a desire in my heart for something, it is because there is something beyond me that will satisfy that desire. The desire itself is indication, says Lewis, that what will satisfy the desire exists. So he says, a baby desires food. That's because there's food that will meet that desire. A duckling wants to swim. That's because there's water on which the duckling can swim. So when we have a yearning for permanence, when you have a world weariness that sets in, when you say, I don't know what will meet this vacuum in my soul, Lewis would said, you're designed for God. In fact, listen to his words. Here's how he says it much better than I could. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. In the years I was working on supervised counseling hours to get my marriage and family therapy license, I've shared this with some of you. My supervisor said to me one day as we were working on a case together of a man who was struggling with sexual acting out, my supervisor said, you know what? Above the doorway to every brothel ought to be hung a sign that says, what you are really seeking is God. That that you're trying to fill, 
It's never going to be filled here or here. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's only going to be filled there. You were designed for God. This week I ran across what quickly rocketed to the top of the list in my C.S. Lewis favorite quotes. Here it is. Sometimes I do not think we desire heaven, but more often I wonder whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. That yearning, that's what God designed you for, for that relationship with Him. So when you stand at the crossroads and you're asking questions about the decision you have to make, ask questions about God. What decision can I make here that will enhance my relationship with God, that will deepen my walk with Him, that will make our experience together more precious? And what relationship could I make that would actually fracture that? Because that's how you're composed. That's how you tick best. So that's option three. Composition. What you're composed of, what you're made of, what makes you tick. So we have three options on the table. Character. Counsel, composition. But don't decide just yet. Just like we did this morning, we're going to leave it open for a bit as you're making your decisions because we have two to go. But I do want to ask you a favor this week. If this week composition rolls around in your mind about the decision you're facing, you're thinking about those realities. I was designed for service. I was designed for relationships. I was designed for God. And if you say, I want to have the wisdom of Solomon in this decision, then do this. Picture in your mind's eye a young woman, a young mother, who's had the worst of life, but picture her almost skipping home because clutched close to her breast is her living boy. And remember that the reason she can do that is because there was a king who knew what made a mother tick. And just ask God, God, you designed me. Would you please show me what it is within me that can truly tick when you're with me. Hey, what an amazing service. An awesome message from Pastor Randy. We're so glad that you joined with us. Uh, we hope that you are blessed moving into this week. As you've heard the message, go out, spread light to this world. Uh, if you've been enjoying Anthem, you feel a part of the family, we would love to connect with you more. You can follow us on all social media platforms at Anthem by LLUC. As well, we would love to have you support us. Uh, you can do that in two ways. You can either text LLUC to 77977, or you can go to anthem or LLUC.org give and choose the Anthem tab, and you'll be able to give. And everything um, is much appreciated. It gives us the opportunity to continue doing ministry, to continue growing ministry. And we're just so glad that you are part of our Anthem crew. So we love you, and we'll see you next week.